You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 145, Retreat from Ticonderoga. Last week, we left the British and German forces under General Burgoyne having nearly surrounded the Americans at Fort Ticonderoga. The British had mounted heavy cannons on Mount Defiance, giving them the ability to fire on the fort and the Americans on Mount Independence without much fear of return fire. Inside Fort Ticonderoga, General Arthur Sinclair realized his situation was quickly becoming desperate. Three enemy deserters filled in the Americans on the size of the force threatening them and other details which made them realize their predicament. On July 4, 1777, the garrison held a small celebration for the first anniversary of American independence. Probably greater cause for celebration was the arrival of Colonel Seth Warner with 700 militia from the Grants, that is, the disputed area that eventually became Vermont. But even with the new arrivals, the presence of the British on top of Mount Defiance on July 5th meant that the garrison was in serious danger. The Americans watched more and more enemy soldiers disembark and slowly put a stranglehold on the fort. Sinclair held a council of war on the afternoon of July 5th to decide what to do next. At the council was General Matthias de Fermoy, who you may recall was the French officer who turned tail and ran at the first sight of the enemy outside Trenton. Also present was New Hampshire General Enoch Poor, a veteran of the Canada campaign. Poor had recently been promoted to Brigadier General by Congress. Joining them was General John Patterson. Patterson had grown up in Connecticut, but had moved to Massachusetts shortly before the war. He served in the Massachusetts militia at the siege of Boston and at Bunker Hill. He also served, along with Poor, in the Canada campaign. After that, Patterson had moved south in time to serve under Washington during the battles at Trenton and Princeton. Congress promoted Patterson to Brigadier General in February, on the same day they promoted Poor, and sent him to Ticonderoga to support its defense. Rounding out the Council of War was Colonel Pierce Long from New Hampshire. Long had been an early patriot, participating in the pre-war raid on Fort William and Mary, see episode 51, and at Ticonderoga commanded a Continental Regiment of New Hampshire soldiers. At the council, Sinclair spelled out their predicament. The garrison in the fort and those atop Mount Independence were both in dire threat. It appeared that the enemy was moving into position to cut off all avenues of escape. Once in place, they would attack both the fort itself and Mount Independence, supported by artillery on Mount Defiance, and that they would overrun both garrisons. 
As Sinclair saw it, they had two options. One was to hunker down inside the fort and hold out under siege as long as possible. But with little food and no prospect of a relief force on the way, this made little sense. The other option was to abandon the fort and combine the forces on top of Mount Independence where they could make a stand and possibly maintain an avenue of retreat if needed. The council agreed unanimously that the fort was indefensible and that any hope of saving the garrison required them to move that night to Mount Independence. It would be easy to criticize Sinclair for ordering the retreat of what was supposedly the strongest fort in North America without even a fight. In fact, Sinclair would later have to defend his actions at a court-martial. He would be exonerated, and I think justifiably so. He would have needed thousands more soldiers and tons more supplies to mount any sort of realistic defense or even hold out for a siege. Remember, Sinclair had only taken command of the fort a few weeks earlier and really couldn't be held responsible for earlier failures to build defenses on Mount Defiance or improve defenses around the fort itself. In fact, even his predecessors probably deserve a break on this point, given the lack of manpower and resources needed to do anything like this. The reality was that Fort Ticonderoga was not a primary concern during the period that Washington was fighting for the survival of the Continental Army around New York City and in New Jersey. Had Sinclair and the garrison remained in the fort for even one or two more days, they would have been captured and marched back to Quebec as prisoners of war. This would have been a far greater defeat and likely would have made the remainder of the Saratoga campaign much easier for the British. Sinclair knew he would be criticized. He said at the time his choice was to lose his character and save his army, or save his character and lose his army. He reasoned correctly that the garrison was much more important. Retreating from a superior force was something that General Washington had already done on several occasions, and is probably what should have happened at Fort Washington on Manhattan when the Americans failed to do that and surrendered 3,000 prisoners. Having made the decision to abandon Ticonderoga, the Continental leaders now had to determine if they were not already too late and how to get everyone safely away from the fort. The first step was moving everyone to Mount Independence. Fortunately, the Continentals had prepared for this. They had put a chain across Lake Champlain to prevent the British fleet from sailing south of the fort. Just south of the chain was a footbridge across the lake that would allow men and supplies to move across and then up Mount Independence. The garrison would cross to Mount Independence during the night to avoid enemy detection. Even moving to Mount Independence, though, was not going to be the final step. From there, the main garrison would end up marching down Hubbardton Road and moving away to the southeast. The Hubbardton Road was more of a rough footpath than would not really be used for artillery or wagons, even if they had horses to drag them. Instead, heavy equipment and supplies would be loaded aboard ships and sailed south down Lake Champlain towards Skeensboro. The sick and wounded, as well as women and children in the fort, would also go on the ships. Sinclair had at his disposal about 200 bateaux, which were only a little larger than a canoe or a rowboat. They could each carry only a few people and a very limited amount of supplies. 
He also had five galleys, the Enterprise, the Liberty, the Gates, the Trumbull, and the Revenge, which could carry some of their artillery and large equipment, but not nearly enough. The army set to work loading as much as they could on the ships. Lack of planning meant that midnight loading did not always prioritize the most important equipment. The wind and a choppy lake also made loading the boats difficult and slow going. Equipment began to pile up at the docks. After dark, the men began moving everything they could out of the fort and across the lake to Mount Independence. Almost immediately, everything began to get clogged up on the other side of the bridge, where no one was directing people to move. It turned out that General Fermoy, who was in command of the forces at Mount Independence, decided to go to sleep in his cabin. Most of his officers followed his example and opted for a good night's sleep as well. The result was leaderless chaos in the dark of night. Sinclair had to order someone to go wake up Fermoy and get the Frenchman to do his job. Secrecy was an important part of this move. If the British discovered the garrison in mid-retreat, they could launch an attack and capture them before everyone had time to cross the narrow bridge. A few of the heavy cannons in the fort continued to fire on the British throughout the night in hopes of covering some of the noise and to convince the British that they were not going anywhere. Everyone participating in the fort's evacuation had to move quietly and without torches or lanterns. This made the night move even more difficult, because orders had to be passed around quietly. Some parts of the fort garrison were not even aware of the orders to abandon the fort until after midnight. The lack of space on the few small ships the army had available meant that many of the cannons simply had to be abandoned and spiked to prevent their use by the enemy. A great deal of food and supplies had to be abandoned as well. About 3 a.m., Sinclair was at the foot of Mount Independence trying to organize the chaos left by General Fermoy's failure to do anything that night. Several hundred pickets still manned the post around the fort, mostly to ensure no deserters left and alerted the British to their night escape. Then, suddenly, a great fire erupted at the top of Mount Independence. It seems that someone had awoken General Fermoy. But rather than come down the hill to organize the retreating column, Fermoy had spent a few hours packing his bags. He violated orders against any candles, lanterns, or campfires that might help the enemy see their escape. Instead, he managed to set his cabin on fire. By some accounts, this was an accident. In others, he deliberately ordered his quarters to be burned. Whatever the case, the massive flames lit up the night sky for miles, giving everyone, including the enemy, a view of the retreating army on Mount Independence. With that realization, the chaos turned to panic. Militiamen started running down Hubberton Road. Sinclair rode ahead of them to halt the panicking soldiers and tried to organize the column. Both soldiers ignored the general and just ran past him. Sinclair did manage to halt and organize some of the fleeing Continentals. Inside the fort, the pickets who were serving as the rear guard also panicked, fearing the British would see the retreat and would be on them before they could cross the footbridge across Lake Champlain. These final companies 
fled across the lake without destroying the remaining equipment in the fort or sufficiently damaging the bridge itself to prevent enemy pursuit. The panic had set in and everyone just wanted to escape. Fermoy's house fire did create problems, but the flames only revealed the escape about an hour before the light of dawn would have anyway. In those early morning hours, the British attempted to capture the American garrison through a three-pronged attack. British forces under General Simon Fraser were moving into Fort Ticonderoga's defenses from the west. The British fleet moved down Lake Champlain to the chain that was directly to the east of the fort. General Redazel's Germans were moving down the eastern bank of the lake in hopes of taking Mount Independence from the east. Native Americans and Canadian militia also marched with both land forces. If Redazel had been able to get his army into position a little faster, the main American force would have had its escape route cut off and would either have to fight the Germans to break out or surrender. Redazel's army, though, had to march through heavily forested land with swamps and streams that made movement very slow. As a result, he would not reach Mount Independence until the Americans had fled. British troops from Fort Ticonderoga would actually be the first to reach Mount Independence, or what the British still called Rattlesnake Hill. The British marched into Fort Ticonderoga without any resistance that morning. They only found a few American stragglers who had either slept through the retreat or who had remained behind in hopes of looting some of the fort's supplies. They quickly discovered that the garrison had poured gunpowder all over the fort with the apparent attempt of blowing it up and setting everything on fire before leaving. However, with that last-minute panic in abandoning the fort, meant that no one had bothered to start the fire. The main thing that slowed up the British forces after taking the fort was that some of the British soldiers did a little looting of their own when they saw the equipment and supplies that were still scattered around the fort. The Americans had pulled up some of the planks on the bridge from the fort to Mount Independence, but the British quickly replaced these and made their way across Lake Champlain. On the other side, a British officer reported finding a loaded cannon pointed at the bridge with four Americans manning the gun. A single shot could have been a disaster to the British crossing the bridge. Fortunately for the British, they found the four Americans passed out with an empty cask of Madeira wine. The men had gotten drunk and fallen asleep before the British got to the bridge. To top it off, a Native American warrior who was with the British Auxiliary was curious about the cannon. He picked up the still-lit ignition stick and managed to fire the cannon anyway. The British soldiers still crossing the bridge were fortunate that the cannon was not pointed at the bridge by this time and that the grape shot landed harmlessly in the lake. By noon on July 6th, with the fort secure, General Burgoyne entered the fort himself and surveyed his victory. The Americans had left behind British and Loyalist prisoners, now released from the fort's prison. They had abandoned at least 80 cannon, many of which had not even been spiked. The British also found over 10,000 pounds of flour, large amounts of salted meat and other food, about 200 oxen, and plenty of other baggage abandoned by the fleeing Americans. 
General Burgoyne congratulated his men on a job well done and ordered the pursuit of the fleeing Americans. By the time Burgoyne entered the fort, General Fraser's forces had already crossed over to Mount Independence and were marching down Hubberton Road after the American Column. I'm going to pick up that part of the story next week. In the meantime, once the British moved a small occupying force to Mount Independence using the Americans' bridge, Burgoyne ordered the bridge destroyed so that the British warships could pursue the Americans down Lake Champlain. Commander of the British fleet, Skeffington Lutwidge, ordered the British cannons to blast away at the chain blocking the lake. After that, the fleet simply blew through the bridge and sailed after the American fleet. The Americans had several hours' head start on the British. The American fleet sailed down to Skeensboro, which was the southernmost point to which larger ships could sail. Colonel Long planned to unload the men and equipment, then march inland to connect up with the main force under General Sinclair, which was marching overland. Before the Continentals could unload their ships, the British fleet was on top of them. Unlike the fighting in prior battles under Generals Howe and Carleton, the British did not simply seize the fort and then take days to regroup and plan. Burgoyne was intent on capturing the retreating Americans and using speed to do it. Commodore Lutwidge had sailed his ships down the lake, transporting several regiments of regulars to a few miles above Skeensboro, then continuing on with his fleet to attack the American ships. The British had been wary as there were several points along the lake where the Americans could have set up an effective ambush. However, the speed of the assault left the Americans with no time to plan any defensive action. By late afternoon, British cannons were firing on the American fleet still docked at Skeensboro. They had set three ships on fire within minutes. The Enterprise, Gates, and Liberty were destroyed. The other two ships, the Trumbull and Revenge, raised their white flags in hopes of avoiding destruction. Most of the hundreds of American soldiers with the fleet fled into the woods to avoid capture. A few bateaux escaped up Wood Creek, but most were destroyed. Colonel Long tried to evacuate the men who had not already fled, moving south toward Fort Anne, about ten miles away. The sick and wounded were abandoned to become prisoners. The supplies were destroyed in the fire started by British artillery. The British, having taken Skeensboro, continued in pursuit. On the morning of July 7th, Colonel John Hill led 200 regulars in pursuit of the Americans at Fort Anne. By this time, Colonel Long had reached Fort Anne with several hundred Continentals. He was soon joined by about 400 local militia under Colonel Henry Van Rensselaer, who had marched up from Fort Edward to provide support. At this point, though, it was unclear if those reinforcements would be enough. The Americans set up a perimeter guard about a mile and a half north of Fort Anne to warn them about any approaching British. Colonel Hill's British regulars probed the American defenses, leading to about four hours of skirmishing. As night fell, the British opted to camp and await more reinforcements. The Americans were uncertain how large an enemy force confronted them. Colonel Long got a volunteer to pose as a deserter who entered the British lines the next morning. 
The deserter told the British that the Americans had at least a thousand men at the fort, almost double the actual number. At the same time, the deserter confirmed that the British had only about 200 men. With that, he slipped out of camp and returned to Fort Anne with his intelligence. The Americans opted to attack the advance force before more British reinforcements could arrive. By late morning, the Patriots attempted to flank the enemy camp using the woods as cover. The attack took the British by surprise. As the Americans had greater numbers, Colonel Hill was forced to retreat, abandoning his own British wounded and taking his regulars to the top of a nearby hill where they formed a defensive perimeter. As ammunition ran low, Colonel Hill had to consider the possibility that he might have to surrender to these Americans. As he considered his options, a small British relief force arrived with a party of Indian auxiliaries. The screams of the Indian warriors rushing into battle was enough to convince the Americans to withdraw. By some accounts, the Indians actually didn't even attack at all. A British officer who was with them ran at the Americans, gave an Indian war whoop to instill fear in the American troops, and it worked. In any case, the Americans pulled out and ended the engagement. A few hours later, General Phillips arrived on the scene with a much larger advance force of 520 soldiers and two cannon. With the arrival of more British reinforcements, the Americans had to reevaluate their situation. They were running out of ammunition, and the majority of the forces there, local militia, wanted to leave. The Americans also learned that General Phillips would soon have about 2,000 soldiers to attack the fort. Colonel Long opted to burn Fort Anne and move his Continentals and militia further south to Fort Edward. Along the way, they destroyed bridges and blocked trails to make a British pursuit more difficult. With the American retreat and the destruction of Fort Anne, the British pulled back to Skeensboro to regroup. Well, there's a story from a British officer who claims to have captured an American flag in this battle that contained 13 stripes and 13 stars on a blue field. Although this story is disputed, if true, it's the first reference to the use of an American flag in battle. General Burgoyne had joined his army at Skeensboro on July 7th, and he was accompanied by Major Philip Skeen, the loyalist who lived there before the war and for whom the town was named after. Skeen had been forced to flee to Canada because of his loyalist sentiments. He was pleased to find his mansion looted, but at least not burned to the ground, and he offered it to General Burgoyne as his headquarters. On July 8th, as Burgoyne received reports from the Battle of Fort Anne and that the Americans had fled south, he was pleased to learn of the victory, but disappointed about the American escape. That evening, a soldier brought him a letter that they said had been nailed to a tree by the Americans and which was addressed to him. When he opened it, the letter simply said, General Burgoyne, it ain't over yet. Next week, British and American forces clash at the Battle of Hubberton. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, 
not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week, and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. My thanks go to Trey Nance today for his continued support of the podcast as a Robert Morris Circle supporter on Patreon. I truly appreciate his efforts to help cover the show's costs. Also, thanks to Robert Onsey, who has joined the podcast on Patreon at the Privy Council level. I greatly appreciate his commitment to support the show as well. Both of them, as well as other supporters at the $10 or higher level, receive a monthly Revolutionary War magnet as a thank you. All Patreon supporters get access to a private commercial-free RSS feed on Patreon. I also want to say thanks to everyone who has left a five-star review for me recently on iTunes, or Apple Podcasts as they call it now. As some of you who follow me on social media know, Apple screwed up my podcast account a few months ago and wiped out all of my past ratings. So I've been trying to get folks to build them up again. I would very much appreciate anyone who takes the time to leave a five-star review for me. These ratings do help me to attract new listeners. This week's episode covered the fall of Fort Ticonderoga. The American decision to abandon the fort without a fight was a surprising victory for General Burgoyne, who had thought that taking the fort would be the hardest part of his campaign that year. When King George received the news weeks later that Burgoyne had taken Ticonderoga, he burst into the Queen's chambers to exclaim, I have beat them. I have beat all the Americans. On the American side, too, the loss of Fort Ticonderoga was thought to be a severe blow to the cause. General Philip Schuyler would lose his command as a result of the loss. He would later be acquitted at a court-martial, but he would never hold a command again. He resigned from the army a couple of years later, and went on to serve as a delegate in the Continental Congress instead. Similarly, General Arthur Sinclair, as I mentioned last week, would also face a court-martial and be acquitted, but he would also never receive another field command during the war. Fort Ticonderoga was considered a very big deal by both sides, even though, in hindsight, its capture proved almost meaningless. If anything, it may have benefited the Americans if it gave General Howe the confidence to think General Burgoyne had this whole Saratoga campaign all wrapped up, and General Howe could focus on taking Philadelphia instead of providing assistance to Burgoyne. 
One other person I wanted to talk about a little bit more is Skeffington Lutwidge. He was the naval commander who shot through the chain blocking the river near the fort, then destroyed the bridge and sailed his fleet down to Skeemsborough to capture the fleeing Continentals. Lutwidge had taken command of the entire Great Lakes fleet at this time. I didn't have any time in the main show to profile him, but he may be best known for his command of a ship that was part of an Arctic expedition in 1773. His ship got within 10 degrees of the North Pole before being forced back by heavy ice. His mission is mostly remembered because he took on a young boy as a midshipman on that voyage as a favor to his friend, the boy's uncle. That boy was Horatio Nelson. Lutwidge would go on to become one of the top admirals in the British Navy during the Napoleonic Wars. Although he died childless, his brother had a grandson named Charles Lutwidge Dodson, who later adopted the pen name Lewis Carroll. Anyway, as I've said, the capture of Fort Ticonderoga kicked off the Saratoga Campaign, which continues in the coming weeks. I want to recommend another good book about the campaign this week. It's called With Musket and Tomahawk, The Saratoga Campaign and the Wilderness War of 1777 by Michael O. Logos. If you're looking for a more enjoyable narrative-style book about the Saratoga Campaign, you might prefer the Ketchum book that I recommended last week. However, I really like Logos's book because it goes through the campaign day-to-day, sometimes hour-by-hour, making it much easier to figure out the course of events and exactly what was happening when. From a research perspective, I found his book extremely helpful. The book is just over 300 pages, not counting notes and index. Although there is no volume number on the book, it turns out that it is the first part of a trilogy that the author has written on the Saratoga campaign. The book was published in 2010, Volume 2 came out in 2012, and Volume 3 came in 2016. Logos, the author, is an Army veteran himself, having served in the Iraq War in 2007 and 2008, before embarking on his career as a writer of historical nonfiction. My online recommendation this week is an ebook from archive.org called The British Invasion from the North The Campaigns of Generals Carleton and Burgoyne from Canada by William Digby. This book was written in 1887 and covers both the 1776 attempt that resulted in the Battle of Valcour Bay as well as the 1777 invasion that captured Fort Ticonderoga. A large chunk of the book is a reproduction of the journal of Lieutenant William Digby, a British regular officer who participated in both campaigns. It's a great primary source for the Saratoga campaign. You can find it for free at archive.org. Just search for The British Invasion from the North, Or, as always, I've provided a direct link to the book on my website at amrevpodcast.com. Incidentally, if you've never visited my website, I always have links to that week's book recommendation and online recommendation. The site also has a link to a Google Doc, which has all of my past recommendations sorted by week. So, if you're listening to an episode long after its publication, you can still find the recommendation on my list of past recommendations. Finally, 
I wanted to mention again that the music that I play at the beginning and end of each episode is cut from a song called Crown Point, performed by the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. The song itself is not from the Revolution. I picked it because it sounded good and because the folks who made it were kind enough to post it as a public domain musical piece on archive.org. You can listen to that full piece and other pieces on archive.org. I'm mentioning them again this week because I just did a new remix of it, which I hope is a little bit better quality, and I'm also going to start playing it to play out the end of the after show. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, wherever you get podcasts.